Hey, good evening, guys. Uh, let's go ahead and get comfortable. Let's open up our Bibles tonight. The Gospel of John, welcome if you're with us uh, live online. The Gospel of John chapter 7 is where we're at, so go ahead and turn there in your Bibles. We're going to be looking at all of chapter 7 here this evening, and a little bit of a rarity uh, getting through, hopefully, uh, the entire chapter tonight. That's that's the plan. Uh, so, uh, you know, um, I think it'll happen. I have a good feeling about this one. <laughs> so, no, John chapter 7, it says that, uh, uh, well, it's interesting. Uh, let me go back a little bit to, to some things that we've covered. But uh, there was uh, a lot of misunderstanding um, and unbelief, you could say, concerning Jesus. And um, now what we're going to see is, is that even many in his own family um, didn't believe during his ministry. I think that's a, a, a bit of a shock. Um, but one thing is clear as we, we get into this passage here tonight. No one ever spoke like this. And, and everybody, even if they didn't believe in Jesus, they, they couldn't deny that no one ever spoke uh, like Jesus. And so that's one of the great things that we have a chance to do when we gather together, and especially here tonight. We have another opportunity to take in not only the Word of God, but the words of the greatest teacher ever. And obviously Jesus was so much more than that, as we'll see. So we're going to see tonight how Jesus' brothers uh, don't believe, and then also then how Jesus teaches during uh, the Feast of Tabernacles. John chapter 7, uh, verse 1 says this, After these things Jesus walked in Galilee, for he did not want to walk in Judea, because the Jews sought to kill him. So Jesus then was ministering in Galilee at this point. Uh, his time had not yet come, and so Jerusalem really uh, being the epicenter of the opposition to Jesus, he... he uh, doesn't want to spend time at this particular moment uh, there in Jerusalem because uh, the Jews sought to kill him. And while that uh, obviously ultimately was part of God's plan in God's timing, we'll talk more about that as we go. But the Jews' Feast of Tabernacles was at hand. So all the Jews obviously would go uh, to Jerusalem three times a year. The Feast of Tabernacles uh, was and is in the fall. And so Jesus would soon uh, be going to Jerusalem, uh, ultimately because uh, of the feast. And so his brothers, verse 3, said to him, Depart from here and go into Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one does anything in secret while he himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For even his brothers did not believe in him. So we see that this whole um, discussion here, um, we get a sense in, in verse 5, they didn't believe. And so what they were doing, it clears it up for us. They were, they were mocking, they were challenging him, uh, saying, you know, if it... Basically, if you're the Messiah and since you're doing, you know, all of these things, you know, why are you just doing that here in Galilee? You know, go up to Jerusalem and, and, and show everybody 
because obviously they, they didn't believe uh, in him and, and that he was really the Messiah. And so they're, you know, they're, they're uh, in a not so subtle way uh, challenging him. And, you know, many Jews uh, we saw uh, last time didn't believe in Jesus. Many disciples, as we also saw, had walked away. But now we see that even Jesus' own family this is what he was dealing with. Even his own family didn't believe in him. And his brothers would believe. They would believe after, though, his death and resurrection. In Acts chapter 1, verse 14, let's take a look at a couple of, uh, uh, of passages here. Acts chapter 1, actually beginning in verse 12. So this is after... Jesus' resurrection, 40-day post-resurrection ministry, and ascension into heaven. And after Jesus ascended into heaven uh, from the Mount of Olives, it says that they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. Now, it's a bit misleading if you don't understand a, a Sabbath day's journey was a very short distance. You can see the Temple Mount uh, very well from the Mount of Olives. It over, the Mount of Olives overlooks the Temple Mount. There's just a, uh, the Kidron Valley in between. So it's a short walk back from where Jesus ascended into heaven on the Mount of Olives back into Jerusalem. And when they entered, they went into the upper room, uh, the traditional site uh, of the upper room. You can walk from the Mount of Olives um, to the traditional site of the upper room and probably 20-minute walk uh, if you're just kind of taking it easy. Uh, so not a long walk, 15, 20 minutes uh, to, to if that was, in fact, the, the location of the upper room uh, where they were staying, it says. Peter, James, John, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, known as James the Less, Simon the Zealot, Judas, the son of James, not Judas Iscariot. These all continued with uh, uh, one accord uh, in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. So sometime between Jesus, in in that 40-day period, between his resurrection and his ascension, his brothers became believers. They saw Jesus resurrected and they, they became believers. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Verses 3 through 8, Paul writing here says, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, of course, talking about the subject as a whole in this section of, or in this chapter of the resurrection, talking about the subject of the resurrection as a whole. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3, Paul writes, For I delivered you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried. That he rose again the third day according to the scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. After that he was seen by over five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remained to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that he was seen by James, then by all the apostles, then last of all he was seen by me also as one born out of due time. 
So James, referenced there, is James, Jesus' brother. James, the lead, ultimately the leader of the church in Jerusalem. So as I said, we have evidence they didn't believe Jesus is resurrected. Uh, then they at some point see him, his brothers do. They believe in that period of time in between his resurrection and his ascension. So his brothers, James and Jude, Uh, They wrote the epistles that we have in Scripture. Uh, So not uh, James the disciple, the brother of John, but this is uh, another James. Uh, There there were three different Jameses. Uh, There was disciple-wise, James the brother of John, James the less, uh, and also uh, James the brother of Jesus. And so at least prominently speaking, um, uh, amongst the, the, the group of disciples. And so James and Jude, the authors of the epistle uh, and brothers of Jesus. And then, of course, James also, as I mentioned a moment ago, would become the leader, interestingly, of the church in Jerusalem. Uh, pretty, pretty easy as we've gone through the book of Acts to see uh, the role of James amongst the elders uh, of the, the early church in Jerusalem. And so, verse 6, uh, continuing on here, John chapter 7, uh, verse 6, Even his brothers didn't believe, and Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always ready. So they're like, hey, you know, if you're really who you say you are, go up to Jerusalem do all these miracles, let everybody see you. Of course, they didn't believe, but they're trying to, you know, call his bluff or challenge him or whatever exactly it is they're trying to do. And, and, and Jesus says, my time hasn't come. It's always your time, but it's not my time. That's what, uh, that's what Jesus says. And you know, like many, they had no sense of, of God's timing. For most people, it is always the right time. In other words, uh, they, you know, uh, do whatever they want to do whenever they want to do it. Their time is always the right time. But most people have no concept, nor do they live their life with this notion uh, or with the important idea that life is not does not revolve around my time, but that life is centered and directed based on God's will and God's timing. As believers, our our lives are, are not our own. And we, like Jesus, were yielded to the Father's will. So we do what He wants us to do when He wants us to do it. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, In verses 19 uh, and 20, uh, the context there is is sexual immorality and sexual purity. But in verse 19, 1 Corinthians 6 verse 19, Paul writes this. He says, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For... You were bought at a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Two things. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. So this idea of 
you know, my will and my plans doesn't make sense as a believer because I was purchased uh, by another and I'm not my own. And even Jesus uh, in the Gospel of John earlier in chapter 4, in verse 34, Jesus said, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. He says, that which sustains me is to do the will of the Father. His will was not even his own, but his will was the will of the Father. And so this idea that, you know, uh, it's about what we want to do and we'll do it in our timing doesn't make sense. You know, Maybe you know that as a believer. Maybe you've struggled with that a little bit as, as a believer. Maybe there were things that you wanted to do or have wanted to do in, in a certain timing, but you, you understand or understood this and, and you couldn't just go and do whatever you wanted to do whenever you wanted to do it because you're submitted to the will of God. And maybe you've seen other people. I know I have in, and. And maybe you've even envied them. You thought, you know, they can just pick up and go wherever they want to go and do whatever they want to do. And, 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 they, and it just seems like, you know, and, and, and you think, and, and, and I can't do that. And, and you might have envied them. I can understand that. I've known a lot of people like that, even Christians. Maybe you think, well, you know, I'm a Christian, they're a Christian, but they just, you know, they seem to, to do whatever they want to do. And, 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 and you have made commitments to serve the Lord and, and to be faithful to your ministries. And, and you have planted roots and you're part of a church. And, you know, I, I've seen a lot of people, even just in this ministry, that have come and then they've been like, okay, well, I'm done. I'm going to do this now. You know? I remember when... Um, right after covid and people were people were just like well uh you know i'm done here in colorado because you know i don't like the the rules and the restrictions here so i'm moving to to this state over here you know and and i understand that the political climate where they were moving you know kind of most places other than here is probably better Except for maybe California, you know, that would definitely be the wrong direction. Or, you know, New York or, or, you know, some other places. But there's a lot of places politically where you can go and where I can go where we'd be like, you know, it, it would probably feel a lot better in some respects. And so I saw people with COVID, you know, just, just, uh, just all right, I'm picking up and moving. And maybe you did too, and, but maybe you didn't do that. And thank you if you didn't do that, especially if God has called you to a ministry. Thank you for being faithful and saying, you know, I don't just do whatever I want. And this is not, to, this is not singling out any person that's, you know, not here anymore or anything like that. But, but I did see that and you could look at that. You could be envious and, and think, yeah, and I'm still here. Praise the Lord, you're still here because you know what? The Lord still needs you and I and the rest of this church here to minister to this community and to preach the gospel and to minister to the hurting and to those that are going through difficult things. That's why we're here. 
And, you know, it's not about uh, picking out what looks to be the best place. Otherwise, you know, maybe you'd be on some trout stream somewhere fishing, or maybe you'd be under a palm tree uh, right now. I would be sitting next to you. My wife would be there too. We would be under a palm tree. We love palm trees. Uh, One of my friends who started a church here, he, when they were building their church, he struggled. He searched far and wide to find a palm tree, some version of a palm tree that might grow in Colorado. <laughs> he didn't find it. He looked. If he did, I probably would have planted some too. I love, I love palm. I'd love to be under a palm tree right now. Who wouldn't? That'd be great. But I'm not raining. I'm not raining now. That's later. Like Paul said to the Corinthians, you're already reigning. You know, you're, you're living your life now, your best life now. What a joke. You're living your best life now. No, this is not your best life. Your best life is yet to come. Right now, it's, time, it's about work. It's good work. It's exciting. It's a blessing. But, you know, I'm not looking for my best life here and now. I'm looking to be faithful to what the Lord calls me to do right now. So I'm not living based on my will and and my timing and what I want to do when. I'm trying to walk in obedience. And your response in obedience is going to look different than mine and other people. And, And so, you know, we've got to be very careful, too. We can't just sit back and say, well, I'm doing it and they're not and they're not and they're not because we don't know exactly what God is speaking to people. So it's not our job to judge them. It's, it's our job to make sure that we are doing what God is calling us to do. And so a lot of times you can look and say, well, gosh, they're getting to do that. And, you know, I would do that, but I'm not, you know. And, but then you've got to step back. Because first of all, if they're not living based on God's will and God's timing, then I feel bad for them. Because while it may look good To you and I, you know, the palm tree may look nice. Eventually, the coconut's going to fall and hit him in the head, you know? And, and, And there are things that, you know, that happen when we're, when we drift outside the will of God, when we drift outside the timing of God. And, and so it's so much better to be right in the middle of the will of God, even if you struggle at some times to have perspective and, and to see that. But over time, you see that more and more, and you realize, yes, oh yes, this is right where I want to be, right in the middle of God's will, conscious of God's timing, doing what he called me to do. And so that's right where Jesus was. That's right where the disciples were. But naturally, his brothers as unbelievers struggled to understand uh, those things. John chapter 7, verse 7. Then he says this also, he says, The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that its works are evil. Here's another thing that we struggle with. You may look and you may think, man, they do whatever they want whenever they want, and no one hates them. You know, I can remember back, there was a time when, you know, uh, I'm pretty sure no one hated me. And I can tell you now that I'm pretty sure that some people do. That's okay. As long as the issue is the gospel. 
that the issue is the, the, the preaching of the gospel, is that the issue is like Christ, we're standing for righteousness. And they hated Jesus. His brothers, no one hated them. They were just, you know, uh, simple guys, probably carpenters like Jesus, you know, uh, normal everyday guys. No one, no one really knew uh, about them, had any reason to hate them, but because Jesus testified to the world that its works were evil in order that the world might be convicted and turned to him, there were those who rejected that and hated him. He said, you go up to the feast. I'm not yet going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. And when he had said these things to him, he remained in Galilee. Now verse 10 says, when his brothers had gone up, then he also went up to the feast, not openly, but as it were in secret. And the Jews sought him at the feast and said, where is he? And there was much complaining among the people concerning him. Some said, he is good. Others said, no, on the contrary, he deceives the people. So Jesus arrives, he arrives in secret. He's, he's going to be uh, out in public here uh, in this section teaching during the Feast of Tabernacles. But he arrives first and, and he's not, uh, he hasn't... Uh, shown himself in public just yet there in Jerusalem. And so people are talking uh, about him, you know, expecting to see him, knowing that he's likely to be there and, and, and to be teaching in Jerusalem. And, and, and there's a, there are different opinions, a lot of different opinions, uh, as we'll see about Jesus. You know, in my experience, some people say, and I'm sure you've had the same experience, some people say Jesus is God. Hopefully you say Jesus is God. Hopefully they, you recognize He's the Messiah, He's God, and you, you've come across those people that would agree with you. You probably run across those people that say, well, I don't think that Jesus was God, but I do think that He was a good person. I do think, they'll even say, I do think that He was a good teacher, that He taught good and and moral things. And then there'll be people that say, you know, uh, I think Jesus was a, you know, was a, a deceiver. Or there's even a, a fringe beyond that, that the idea of Jesus is deceiving. Someone else is deceiving concerning Jesus and that uh, he didn't exist at all. Um, you know, and that he, he wasn't even a, 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 a real person. You know, there's, there's a lot of different ideas when it comes to Jesus. However, here's what I would say, and, and I think that um, logic uh, will bear this out. There's really only two choices when it comes to Jesus. There's only really two paths that, that you can choose uh, when it comes to Jesus Christ. Um, basically, he is he's either Lord He's either God and God's Son, and He's Lord and of all and Lord of your life, or He's not. He either was who He said He was, God in the flesh and the Son of God, come into the world to die for the sins of the world. He is either the Son of God, or He is not. Now, if He's not, you know, you really only have a couple of options. By the way, 
the non-existent option um, is not a good one because there's, there's more evidence for Jesus Christ than there is for Julius Caesar. So, you know, uh, you, can, you can say, well, you know, history and this and that. No, it doesn't work. When you start looking at the evidence that exists both in the Bible and outside of the Bible. So you can't really choose the non-historical approach. So then you either have that Jesus existed, and if you're saying he wasn't God, he was a liar. So that, that is an option if, if, if that's what you choose to believe. I don't think it's a good option, but it is an option. Or that he was a lunatic. So if Jesus isn't the Son of God, he's either a liar or a lunatic. He's either, he was either lying or he was, he was deceived himself about who he really was. So you really only have two options. And, and if you want to break down that second option of not believing, he's either Lord, liar, or lunatic. One of the, you choose. But ultimately you either believe in him uh, or you don't believe in him. You're either, as Jesus said, you're either for him or you're against him. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 30, Jesus laid it out just like that. He said, it's one or the other. He said, he who is not with me is against me. So someone can say, well, you know, I, I, I don't really believe in Jesus, but, but I don't not believe in Jesus. Well, not according to Jesus. You're either for him or against him. You either believe, and if you don't believe, by default, or, or, by default you're, you're against him, Jesus said. You're either with me or, or you're against me. He who does not gather with me scatters abroad. He said, so if you don't believe and you're not with me, you're actually working against me. And there's a lot of people that say, well, you know, I don't know. Well, you need to figure out. Because if you just punt and say, I don't really know, then you've effectively made a decision by default or a decision has been made for you by default. So you're either with him, you either believe uh, according to Jesus uh, or you do not believe. And Jesus claimed to be God in the flesh. A lot of people, you know, it's interesting. Here's a reasonable question. So why did... People come along, they say, well, you know, Jesus never claimed to be God. What, what that tells you is, is that they, I don't really know what tells you. It tells you that they don't know the Bible, that's for sure. They don't know what is recorded by reputable witnesses that Jesus said concerning where he came from, heaven. And so Jesus made it very clear and that is why they killed him. That is why Jesus ultimately was, why the Jews sought to kill him. By the way, the Romans didn't really want to kill Jesus, but also they lacked the spine not to fulfill the wishes of the Jews. The Jews didn't have the power legally at that time, being occupied by the Romans, controlled by the Roman government. They didn't really... Capital punishment wasn't really, even though they did some from time to time, capital punishment wasn't really in their, legally in their own hands at that time. And it wasn't really safe, particularly for the leaders. They, would, they had a lot to lose if they illegally executed somebody. So they needed the Romans to help them. 
but it was their desire to get rid of Jesus. The Romans didn't really want to, but sadly, the, the uh, Pilate uh, lacked the spine to actually stand up to, to the Jewish leadership at that particular point in time. And so we see that, you know, they, they, they wanted to execute Jesus. They, they wanted to get rid of him because he claimed to be God. And in their minds, that was blasphemy and that was deserving uh, of death. John chapter 5, verse 18, if you look back, again, just back a couple of chapters here. John chapter 5. Verse 18, it says that the Jews sought all the more to kill Jesus because, first of all, in their minds, he broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. So it lays it out there very clearly to us. They wanted to kill him because he said that God was his father, he was the son of God, Therefore, making himself, they understood that correctly, equal with God. He was God. Uh, he was divine. If you look also uh, in John chapter 10, looking ahead a little bit then from where we are tonight. In John chapter 10, verse 30, Jesus said this. He made a, a very bold statement. He said, I and my Father are one. So not only is he, is he the Son of God, but he is one with the Father. In union and in essence, we obviously understand this uh, as the concept of the Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three distinct persons uh, one God, not three different personalities, but three distinct persons within the Godhead. One God, we would say, eternally existent in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So Jesus was God. Jesus was in person, the second person of the Trinity, the Son, but he was one with the Father. Verse 31 of John 10, then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. And Jesus answered them, many good works I have shown you from my Father. For which of those works do you stone me? And the Jews answered him saying, for a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. And because you, being a man, make yourself God. So the person that claims that Jesus never claimed to be God doesn't understand what the Bible says, doesn't even understand what his enemies understood him to say and why they, why they ultimately killed him, why they ultimately uh, had him crucified. And continuing in John chapter 10, verse 34, Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said, you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the Son of God. He quotes from the 82nd Psalm. Speaks in particular of those in the time of the judges who who uh, 
the Lord used in the nation of, of, of Israel. And God had delegated his authority to them and he called them God's little g in a sense because they represented God. So he says if, if he called them that, then how much more does the son who comes down from God, who comes down from heaven, who is God, how much more appropriate is, is it to refer to him as the son of God? If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. So it comes back to what Jesus did. He said he was the Son of God. Was he or wasn't he? Well, you can verify that because if he didn't do the works of the Father, which he did and, and they were dramatic, then they shouldn't have believed him. But if, they did, if he did, then they needed to believe him. He says, but if I... I do, though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. So I and the Father are one, and the Father is in me and I am in him. So Jesus made it very clear who he was and where he was from. And so you have to decide. Either he is, based on what he said and what he did, either he is or he isn't, one way or the other the Son of God and God in the flesh. They had to decide. Every person has to decide. Now, in verse 14, it says that about the middle of the feast, John chapter 7, verse 14, about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and taught. So he's he's now going to publicly teach in the temple during the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles lasted uh, eight days. About the middle of that feast, he goes and he's teaching the first parties in secret. And, you know, then, then now he's out there. Uh, verse 15, the Jews marveled, saying, how does this man know letters, having never studied? And Jesus answered them and said, my doctrine is not mine, but his who sent me. So they're looking at him and they're marveling because, you know, he, he doesn't come from Jerusalem. He hasn't studied with the rabbis and, you know, the Pharisees or even the Sadducees. And hey, he's not a scribe. He's not a scholar. He's, he, he, he's not any of these things. And yet, um, he's obviously very well educated. And so Jesus uses their marveling as an opportunity to glorify the Father. And then he says this in verse 17. If anyone wills to do his will, so the Father who sent him, if anyone wills to do his will, he shall know concerning the doctrine whether it is from God or whether I speak on my own authority. So he says, look, if you're starting out from the right place, you're going to come to the right place concerning me. And you're going to know, if your desire is to do the Father's will, then you're going to know whether or not what I'm teaching is from the Father. And so that just tells you that from the start, the people that rejected Jesus, they already started out in the wrong place. So what was going to happen is is they were going to go further down the wrong road. But that's why you see a difference with people like Nicodemus, for example, who was one of them. People like Joseph of Arimathea, members of the Sanhedrin and the council, 
And yet they believed. Because there were people among them. And there were the simple, the common people who who heard him gladly. And their desire was still to do the will of God. So when they heard the word of God taught from Jesus, it became obvious to them that what he was teaching was true about God and particularly about himself. And the same is true today. For those people in their hearts, even if they don't necessarily know a whole lot, but if God has put that desire in their heart, if they're sensitive to his will, when they hear the word of God taught, they're, they're going to respond to that. They're going to respond in a good way to the teaching of the Word of God. They're going to understand the truth and they're going to respond to the truth. And so, verse 18, he says, He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory. But he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true. So Jesus' message, he says, could also be verified in the fact that it wasn't about glorifying himself it was about glorifying the father and he says verse 19 did not moses give you the law yet none of you keeps the law why do you seek to kill me and so now we have a strong condemnation they gloried in the law but there was no power in merely possessing the law It didn't mean anything just to to have the law. There was no power in just having the law. You had to, in order for the law to have any power, you had to keep the law. And here they were demonstrating that all they did was have knowledge of the law because they were trying, they were plotting uh, to kill him. In verse 20, the people answered, They didn't really have a good answer, so they said this. You have a demon who is seeking to kill you. So they just decide, having no reasonable response to Jesus, that they'll just insult him by accusing him of being demon-possessed and that the demon was seeking to cause him to say things that would get him killed. That's that's the idea. You, You know... It's not us that wants to kill you. You just have this, you're demon possessed and it's making you say things and that's going to get you killed. That's the, the, that's the demon trying to get you killed. And Jesus answered and said to them, I did one work and you all marvel. What's the work that he's referring to? Well, he's referring back to John chapter 5 there in verse 16 because that was the point after when he healed the man at the pool of Bethesda. Uh, Previously, when he was there on the Sabbath, he healed him, and that's when they wanted to kill him. And so he points back to that. And then he says this, verse 22, Moses gave you circumcision. Not that it was from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. So if a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses should not be broken, are you angry with me because I made a man completely well on the Sabbath? (laughs) So the issue of the Sabbath was work, not effort. Understand that. 
The issue of the Sabbath was, was what was classified as work. Not to be confused with effort. I'm sure there are things that you can do that require more effort than maybe your job. Maybe not. But, you know, uh, there might even be things that you enjoy that are actually more difficult than, than physically speaking or effort-wise than, than your job, maybe. And you wouldn't call those work even though they require more effort. That's because you realize that there's a difference between work and everything else you do. And, and, and part of that difference is, is that you do one for a living um, or one because it is um, things that are required, though you may not necessarily be paid for it. And then there's the other things that you do just because you choose to do them. And it might actually take more effort, especially if you work from home, to come to church. But coming to church is not, it's not work. I hope not anyway. Even though it requires more effort. So that's what Jesus is talking about here. He's saying, look, you, you circumcise someone on the Sabbath. And it actually takes more effort to circumcise than, than what Jesus did, but circumcision isn't work. It was a sign of their covenant with God. It was part of their relationship with God. Even though in terms of effort, and, and you know, it took a lot. It took a lot for them to perform it. It took a lot for an individual to go through that. Ironically, it took actually no effort for Jesus to heal. You know, he didn't have to say you know, really kind of sweat and, you know, uh, you're healed, rise, take up your bed and walk. No effort at all. All he had to do was talk, you know. Didn't even have to wave his hand or anything. Took, took no effort. So what Jesus did actually took less effort than what they do all the time on the Sabbath. And that's the point that he's making is, look, it's not even about effort. What is more or less? It's about work and not work. And anything that you're doing for the Lord that he calls you to do, whether it's the fulfillment of a covenant, or in this case, whether it's the healing of someone who has been suffering, that's not breaking the Sabbath. Their minds were warped, spiritually speaking. And doing good and keeping the law wasn't work. So he says this, verse 24, Do not judge according to appearance. But judge with righteous judgment. You see, that's the problem. Religious people judge according to appearance. And usually they judge according to appearance based on their preconceived ideas or traditions. Or how it's been taught to them by some man. Some man-made set of rules. And what he says is judge with a righteous judgment the only righteous judgment comes from God. Righteous judgment does not come from men. And so verse 25, it says, Now some of them from Jerusalem said, Is this not he whom they seek to kill? So every, Everybody knew they wanted to kill him. That's interesting. <laughs> you know, what if somebody walked in here? I mean, just... 
think about, I mean, that's easy to pass over, but just, let's grasp how absurd that is for a moment. Imagine somebody walked in here and people said, hey, isn't that the guy that, that the pastor and, and the other people want to kill? How is he just walking around here like that, you know, going to church and, and isn't that, don't they want to kill him? I mean, how twisted is that that they wanted to kill him, that everybody knew that and it was just kind of like common knowledge. Hey, there's the guy they want to kill. I mean, that's where they were at. That, that's religion in those days uh, and, and, and at that time. And so verse 26, they said, but look, he speaks boldly and they say nothing to him. Do the rulers know indeed that this is truly the Christ? Have they changed their mind? However, we know where this man is from, but when the Christ comes, no one knows where he is from. Where did they get that verse? Nowhere. People walk around all the time. Everyone knows that? They'll say all kinds of things. They're sure it's in the Bible. You know, all of those, all of those uh, um, sayings that people get, God helps those who help themselves. That's, I love that one. <laughs> nothing even the opposite the bible says the opposite of that you know uh <laughs> i i i remember uh one time I, I way back and uh i tried to get this right i was waiting tables so this is like over 30 years ago and i'm i don't know i'm serving something at this table and there's some people there talking and uh and and one guy says at the table he says <laughs> he he says uh um a house divided against itself cannot stand quotes that right and i so i my ears perk up and i'm like oh where is this conversation gonna go I take my time here and just hear as much of this conversation Another guy says, yeah, Abraham Lincoln said that. Well, I think he did, but someone else said it first. Jesus said it. So people have all kinds of ideas. What's, you know, from the Bible, what's, and usually what's in the Bible they don't know is from the Bible, and what's not in the Bible they put in the Bible. So, you know, uh, Lord helps those who, you know, who, who help themselves and, and, and some of these other different things that get attributed to Scripture. So where did they get the idea? No one knows where, where the Messiah is going to be from. In fact, there were all kinds of Scriptures. Out of Egypt, I have called my, my son. He would spend time in Egypt. He would be born in Bethlehem, accord, according to the, uh, the prophet Micah, that, that he would be a Nazarene. So he would, be, he would be raised in Nazareth. All of these things were, were in Scripture. So they just, they didn't know it, unfortunately, as well as they thought. And what they thought they knew about the Scripture actually kept them from Jesus, who fulfilled what the Scripture said about the Messiah. And so people often have wrong ideas they get the wrong idea about jesus because they have preconceived ideas or assumptions or unfortunately sometimes things that were taught that were incorrect that were taught them in fairness to a lot of people that actually keep them from jesus verse 28 
Then Jesus cried out as he taught in the temple, saying, You both know me, and you know where I'm from. And I've not come of myself, but he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. But I know him, for I am from him, and he sent me. Therefore they sought to take him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. Verse 31. And many of the people believed in him and said, When the Christ comes, will he do more signs than these? They were on the right track. They're like, are you kidding? When the Messiah comes, how could he possibly do more than he's done? They were, you know, at least honest about it. And verse 32, the Pharisees heard the crowd murmuring these things. And so uh, they sent officers to take him, verse 33. And Jesus said to them, I shall be with you a little while longer. And then I go to him who sent me. You will seek me and not find me, and where I am, you cannot come. And the Jews said among themselves, Where does he intend to go that we shall not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? So uh, what is this thing he said? You will seek me and not find me, and where I am, you cannot come. So, of course, Jesus, you probably recognize, was referring to his death, his resurrection, his ascension, which we talked about earlier, to the Father, and they, but they didn't grasp that. And so they wondered whether, you know, well, maybe he's going to go to the Jews dispersed amongst the Gentiles. Maybe he's going to even teach the Gentiles. There's something really interesting because that's prophetic, isn't it? They didn't even realize it, and yet it's prophetic how Jesus would minister through people like Paul and ultimately how God would do a work all over the world, of which we are, of course, a part of that and the beneficiaries of that today. On the last day of the, uh, the last day, that great day, verse 37 of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. In other words, he hadn't died and been resurrected, and so the Holy Spirit hadn't yet been given to believers. And so Jesus is speaking here on the last day, the greatest day we're told in Leviticus chapter 23, verse 36. The greatest day of the Feast of Tabernacles, the last day, it was a high day of that feast. And there was a tradition at the Feast of Tabernacles daily where they would um, draw water from the pool of Siloam. By the way, in the last uh, year in particular, tremendous work, the pool of Siloam was, was found, it's been several years now since they located the pool of Siloam, but they've been doing extensive excavations of the, the pool of Siloam. It was uh, to the south of the Temple Mount. You went down what was called the Ophel, down toward the intersection of the Kidron Valley and the Hinnom Valley. And down close to there was where the Pool of Siloam was. And during the Feast of Tabernacles, every day they would draw water from the Pool of Siloam. They would take it in a silver basin to the altar of burnt offering and they would pour that water out. But on the eighth day, the, the, 
the final day of the feast, the most important day of the feast, uh, they wouldn't do that, which is the day that actually Jesus is at this point here as he's speaking these words, which make them even more dramatic. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And the pool of Siloam um, was a source um, or collected living water, water that flowed from an underground spring. And so it was living water that they brought up. Only that day they didn't bring it, but Jesus is the living water standing there in the temple. And he says, look, I am the ultimate fulfillment of this uh, example. And so what tradition, what religion, um, what life cannot provide you, I can, Jesus says, provide you. I am, Jesus says. And they only needed to come to him and to drink And if they would believe, they would be saved and they would be filled to overflowing with the Spirit of God. And it says, verse 40, that many from the crowd, when they heard this saying, said, truly, this is the prophet. And others said, this is the Christ. But some said, will the Christ come out of Galilee? Again, their ideas are confusing them. Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the seed of David and from the town of Bethlehem? Yes, but that was only part of it. So there was confusion. And in verse 45, the officers came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why have you not brought him? And the officers answered and said, no man ever spoke like this man. We want to arrest him, but we just can't bring ourselves to do it because we start listening to him and just nobody talk, nobody's ever spoke like this man. And the Pharisees answered them, Are you also deceived? Have any of the rulers of the Pharisees believed in him? The answer is yes, they had. But this crowd that does not know the law is a curse. Nicodemus, one such person who did believe in him, who came to Jesus by night, being one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man before it hears him and knows what he is doing? And they answered and said to him, Are you also from Galilee? Search And look, for no prophet has arisen out of Galilee. Of course, Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, as I said, would believe. John chapter 19, when we get there, verses 38 through 42, they're the ones who take Jesus off the cross, prepare his body, and and bury him in haste before the beginning of the Sabbath. And it says in verse 53, and everyone went to his own house. So, As you look at this, it's easy to see there were people in all sorts of different ways, spiritually, in all sorts of different places in their minds and in their hearts. The question is really not so much where were they at, but where are you at tonight? Are you for him? Are you against him? The greatest teacher ever. Who was he? Who was he? I pray that you've recognized that Jesus is the Messiah, that you have put your faith and trust in him. And if you haven't, I pray that you would, that you would not wait any longer. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word tonight. As you say, it is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword piercing deep to the division 
of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. And it is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Lord, as your word, let it go deep into our hearts tonight and to lay everything open that we may see. And for those who take a look there tonight and see that they haven't placed their faith and trust in you, that they would be honest with themselves and that they would surrender their life to you. That they would receive, Father, your Son for the forgiveness of sins. If you're here tonight, you haven't given your life to Christ. You need to. Time is short. Jesus Christ is coming soon. You need to decide, are you for him? Are you against him? Have you received his sacrifice on the cross? Are your sins forgiven? Do you have the hope of heaven? The confident expectation of eternal life? Or are you on the path to paying for your own sins forever apart from God in hell? What changes your destiny and decides is what you do with Jesus Christ. And if you haven't given your life to Christ, if you haven't repented of your sin and received his sacrifice and his forgiveness, I want to pray with you tonight to definitively do that and that you can know that. I invite you right now to to lift your hand this evening so we can pray together as we close in prayer and so that you can know that God has heard you and that you can know that you have committed your life to Jesus Christ, that you are saved. If you want to join me, you slip up your hand this evening. We'll pray. But please take this opportunity now. Thank you, Lord, so much. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your patience with us every day, your grace, your mercy. Thank you for the way that you provide, the way that you heal, that you help us to walk with you, that you use us. We pray in these days in which we live that you would use us in even greater ways, your church, that you would draw many people to yourself, that we wouldn't be about our timing, about our plans, about what we want, but that we would be about your business. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.